Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Let me welcome you all uh, to the Symposium on Financial Crises and Globalization here at University of California, Riverside. Um, this is uh, sponsored by the uh, UCR Program on Global Studies and co-sponsored by the UCR Public Policy Initiative, the Economics Department, the Labor Studies Program, and the Institute for Research on World Systems. I'm Christopher Chase Dunn. I'm a professor of sociology here and the director of the Institute for Research on World Systems and the director of the University Honors Program. And I'd just like to uh, welcome you all. Uh, the structure of the program today, it's a, it's a symposium. So we're, we're going to hear lectures from uh, three UC professors and then have time for you to ask questions in between each lecture so you don't have to jumble at all at the end. And each speaker will speak for 25 minutes and we'll have 15 minutes for discussion. And we have a, a, a wireless mic for you and we're going to ask you to uh, speak into the mic because this is being uh, videotaped for UCTV. And um, if, it would also be good if the uh, uh, if people could repeat the if the uh, speakers could repeat the questions that are that are asked from the floor. Um, <clears throat> Anil Dalalakar is the associate dean of the uh, College of Humanities and Social Sciences and uh, a professor of economics, uh, and he's going to help me uh, facilitate the uh, the process today. And our first speaker is Mike Davis. And he's going to tell you what he's going to talk about, but let me just tell you a little bit about Mike Davis. He's a professor of creative writing here at UCR, and um, he's uh, a winner of the MacArthur Fellowship and the Lannan Literary Foundation Award, a prolific author. I'm sure many of you have read his books. He writes about, uh, he's, he's a, a public social scientist who writes about science and about Southern California and the global economy and a lot of wonderful books that uh, I'm sure uh, many of you have read. And we're happy to have him uh, today uh, and he's going to tell you uh, what his uh, talk is about. Mike? It's such a lovely day in Riverside, I feel a little bit embarrassed about bringing my own little dark cloud along, but here we go. Although it now seems like a mad dream, just three years ago, Riverside and Imperial County officials were promoting a scheme to build as many as 200,000 homes on the shrinking shorelines of the Salton Sea. Responding to a seemingly insatiable demand for affordable tract housing, they even proposed to allow subdivisions in a former atomic weapons test site from the 1950s. And exploded munitions and possibly radioactive soil were deemed less hazardous than a deficit of developable land. In those days, one property bubble inflated another. Stratospheric land values in coastal counties drove aspirin homeowners to inland empires, boom towns like Corona, Rancho Cucamonga, Temecula. And in Riverside County, as a result, prices for new homes increased 283% from 1997 to 2006, creating the illusion that the region was becoming Orange County 909. But established residents' windfalls became younger home seekers' nightmares 
is housing affordability in the Western Inland Empire sharply declined, although it preserved its comparative advantage over the absolutely astronomical land inflation in Orange and San Diego counties. Desperate buyers, many seemingly oblivious to the length of their daily commutes or the impact on their family lives, rushed in the Mojave Desert and the Coachella Valley where prices were 30% cheaper than in Corona or Rancho Cucamonga. Victorville became the new Fontana, Barstow the new Victorville. Arid parcels of creosote and Ocotillo and suddenly trendy desert hot springs soared tenfold in price in a few years. Now, the same development mania that swept Southern California's desert also overflowed into the Central Valley hinterlands of San Francisco, San Jose, and Sacramento. Exploding property values in Alameda, Contra Costa, and Napa counties drove a frenzy of new suburbanization in San Joaquin, Solano, Stanislaus, and Merced counties, a region that shares the Inland Empire's chronic jobs housing imbalance and an economy skewed toward real estate-related occupations. As the official 2006 financial report for the city of Tracy in San Joaquin County admitted with rare candor, quote, in Central California these days, it seems that everyone is a real estate agent, mortgage broker, home builder, or construction worker. In Stockton, construction now represents 8.5% of total non-farm payrolls, up from 6.5% in 2001. In Modesto, construction payrolls rose by more than 14% over the past year, comprising 32% of new jobs. Overdependence on one sector for economic growth rarely ends well for the regional economy, and Central California will be no exception. That's the official City of Tracy report. In addition to their tractome monocultures, San Joaquin County and the Inland Empire, San Bernardino, and Riverside counties share the role of distribution and warehousing hubs for the Bay Area and Los Angeles, respectively. But both are underdeveloped countries from the standpoint of office construction, public and private R&D, technology industries, or capital-intensive manufacturing. This employment shortfall, of course, is made up by the hundreds of thousands of long-distance commuters with little or no access to public transit who hopelessly gridlock US 580, I-15, and the 91 freeway every morning in their struggle to reach jobs in coastal cities. In addition to their undiversified economies, the similar demographics of the suburbanizing Central Valley and Inland Empire, a high proportion of commuters, young children, unsupervised teens, uh, poor people, disabled people, and so on, generate demands for public services that overwhelm local fiscal resources. Everywhere in Inland California, the result has been a painful shortfall of investment in public transit, schools and community colleges, social and health services, and recreational space. The structural crisis, however, was masked by the five-year-long boom in property values and home equity spending, which also leveraged commercial real estate markets and local retail employment. But if new home prices nearly tripled in California between 1996 and 2006, household incomes rose by only 20%. Almost unnoticed amidst the hoopla about the coming Dow 30,000 and eternally rising property values, was the persistent stagnation of real hourly wages, as well as the increasingly desperate housing situation of low-income renters and farm workers. Third world shanty towns, 
like Duralville, with its mud polluted water and feeded ponds of human waste, grew up in the shadow of wealthy gated golf communities. This widening scissors between household income and home values, between wages and rents, is not unprecedented. Although the real estate bubble and in-migration have tended to erase such memories, the recession of the early 1990s clobbered California's emergent suburbs. Indeed, foreclosed homes, derelict mini malls, weeds strewn lots are recurrent, perhaps even perennial aspects of the local boom and bust cycle landscape. But the recession of 1991-1993, which interrupted growth in the Inland Empire and northern Los Angeles County, can hardly model the seemingly bottomless character of the present collapse or the new global dimension of the suburban overbuilding crisis. All the fast growth counties of inland California now face double-digit rates of home foreclosure and unemployment. Riverside, Merced, Stockton have become front-page rivals for the dubious honor of being the national capital of the subprime crisis. Indeed, their desperation has spawned a vulture subculture of equity scavenging. Repo home tours through the foreclosed subdivisions of Stockton now attract speculators or voyeurs from all over the world, while Southern California television stations broadcast special programs on how to find bargains in the mortally wounded neighborhoods of the Inland Empire. Physical blight, moreover, has grown like an ineradicable weed. In Merced, police are powerless to deal with the burgeoning number of squatters and bank repossessed homes, while in Riverside, no one knows what to do with all the horses abandoned by their bankrupt and foreclosed owners. In Escondido, a large residential hub on the I-15 corridor in northern San Diego County, a desperate developer of luxury homes has offered <coughs> buy one, get one free to attract potential customers, so no one's actually taken up his offer. The rapidly growing tent city of homeless people in Ontario, meanwhile, has been widely publicized in the international press as a shameful symbol of American hard times and government neglect. Unfortunately, recent data supports these media hyperboles. A county-by-county -county assessment of the California economy released by Senator Barbara Boxer's office in early December found recession impacts almost an order of magnitude more severe in third California, inland California, than in richer coastal areas. For example, the foreclosure rate at the end of last year was 1 in 62 in Marin County, 1 in 126 in San Francisco, but it was 1 out of 7 in both Merced and San Joaquin counties. Although Los Angeles and Orange counties include working class subregions with high rates of subprime mortgages, their overall foreclosure rate of 1 in 24 homes was small change compared to Riverside's 1 in 8. According to a parallel analysis by John Husing, the veteran economist who writes the Inland Empire Quarterly Economic Report, almost all of the 350,000 homes sold in the Inland Empire between 2004 and 2007, that is to say fully one-third of this region's housing inventory, are underwater. By November, he, last November, he estimated there had been about 126,000 notices of foreclosure had been served on that 254,000 other households face possible foreclosure over the next couple of years. Home values have been down 42% through the region, double the rate for the state. 
and are not expected to reach bottom until at least the end of 2011. But homeowners aren't the only casualties. The subprime meltdown, with far less attention than the media, has also hammered renters who are not illegally entitled to notice of their landlord's foreclosure and can be evicted even if they're entirely up to date with their, their payments. Meanwhile, the large metropolitan area, with the highest rate of employment last November, according to the Labor Department, was not Detroit, as most people expected, but the San Bernardino-Riverside metropolitan area. More than 80% of the local job loss has been attributed to the deep slump in construction and related occupations like real estate, uh, client sales, building materials. In the single decade between 96 and 2006, construction employment in the region had more than tripled from 42,000 to 133,000. But building activity began to slow in late 2006, and job growth of any kind abruptly came to a halt uh, this fall. By third quarter 2008, notes Husing, home construction all but halted as price competition from foreclosures caused developers to lose money on every unit built, even with land treated as a free good. Also, tens of thousands of local jobs are at peril in the global logistics industry. <clears throat> Excuse me. Apart from being a dormitory for commuters who work in Los Angeles, Orange, and San Diego counties, the Inland Empire is also Southern California's ch chief warehouse district, a physical extension of the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. As land values rose and new industrial space became, became scarce in the late 1960s, Los Angeles-based highway and rail freight operations began to move inland from the Vernon City of Commerce area to the city of industry in Santa Fe Springs, then over the hills to the Pomona and San Bernardino Valleys, and finally to the high desert above Cajon Pass. Warehouses, car loaders, brake bolt distribution centers punctually followed the trucking companies and railroad yards. As a result, Southern California's big box retail outlets and national franchises are fed a just-in-time diet of imported merchandise from the vast wholesale inventories of even bigger tilt-up slab concrete boxes in Ontario, Paris, and Victorville. Since 98, the volume of containers, as the volume of containers landed at San Pedro's twin ports, San Pedro Bay's twin ports, increased 250%, the Inland Empire has added an average of 20 million square feet of warehousing every year. A pace of construction that local boosters have elucidated was, quote, a sustainable equilibrium. Certainly, it's been an impressive achievement. In recent years, the Inland Empire has accounted for more than 80% of industrial construction in Southern California and repeatedly is ranked as the strongest industrial real estate market in the country. Distribution, however, multiplies income and jobs less effectively than did the Inland Empire's now vanished military bases, railroad yards, and steel plants. Warehousing is land rather than labor or capital intensive, and surprisingly little value-added processing or assembly actually takes place within this region. Nonetheless, the creation of 400 million square feet of warehouse space of the last generation and a half has enlarged the related workforce from 44,000 in 1990 267,000 in 2006, making distribution almost co-equal to residential construction as the driver 
of regional growth. Regional, regional business leaders have welcomed international trade as a kind of perpetual motion growth machine, as well as a stabilizing counterweight to the fluctuations in residential building. The Twin Counties' vast res reserves of desert land along the I-15 and I-40 corridors, I-10 corridors, assure an almost infinite supply of cheap, easily developable space for more warehouses and light industries, as well as casinos, prisons, and discount shopping malls. But now the Inland Empire's reliance on Pacific Rim trade has become an accelerator rather than a break on unemployment. The downturn of the distribution economy began in early 2007 as a cheaper dollar interacted with soaring oil prices to make imports more expensive. The new cost calculus had uneven impacts in different subregions of the Inland Empire. Warehouses west of the I-15 and closer to the ports remained busy, while vacancy rates rose to 17% in locations like Paris Valley and the Ukaipa area. But the fuel crisis was just a prelude to the sharp contraction in Pacific trade this fall, and now the unexpected recessions in the economies of East Asia. As failing U.S. car dealers rushed to cancel orders already in transit, tens of thousands of suddenly unwanted, unloved Toyotas and Hyundais filled up every available acre of space in the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. The impact of this import freeze-up was undoubtedly just as acute, if less dramatically visible, in the warehouses of the Inland Empire. For economy of presentation, I won't uh, bore you with comparable trends and vulnerabilities in the housing markets and economies of the suburban Central Valley. Let me just observe that San Joaquin County closely replicates the Inland Empire's dependence on the duopoly of real estate and distribution. While the housing downturn has been similar in both inland regions, the Central Valley, because of its larger agricultural sector and higher base uh, unemployment, uh, has even higher rates of, of joblessness. But all of inland California only mirrors and magnifies the fundamental contradiction of the U.S. economy as a whole. A precarious hypertrophy of unstable trade balances and ported credit, fictional assets, and tertiary employment erected on a shrunken basis of manufacturing and public investment. In a, a summary and very telegraphic mode, I just want to venture a few theses about the specificity of the current crisis is seen from and experienced within or on, <coughs> excuse me, the rims of the great West Coast metropolises. First, Third California is financial dead sea. In 1992-94, Southern California was the chief locus of the national recession, which like other post-war slowdowns had a strongly regional character. The current crisis, in contrast, has been internationally synchronized at virtually every scale, refuting the widespread belief that European and Asian commerce could continue to sustain the world economy in spite of the real estate-triggered meltdown in U.S. security markets. Economic globalization, far from insulating or decoupling other economic blocks from the American credit bubble, has instead ensured the transmission of the crisis at virtually pandemic velocity to every trading country. This proves, in my opinion, that the deep roots of the crisis are in the macroeconomic conditions, above all industrial overcapacity, declining rates of profit, income inequality, and imperial overreach, 
that have allowed or made possible the inflation of successive tech stock and real estate bubbles. In a nutshell, the American economy is no longer sufficiently dynamic or structurally equilibrated to organize a stable world system of production, but it's the source of last resort consumer demand. It remains large enough to drag down all of its creditors and exporters. So, while acknowledging that it's the real economy is stupid and that the great engines of deflation are global in character, the catalytic role of fast growth American urban peripheries and precipitating the financial phase of the crisis is striking. It's prefigured by the savings and loans debacle of the 1980s, Sunbelt suburbs, the heartlands of the Reagan revolution and then Karl Rove's conservative Christian majority, have been the fracture zone in which the debt avalanche began. The epicenters include such icons of uh, suburban real estate as Prince William and Ladoon counties on the Virginia side of Metro Washington, Cape Coral and uh, Fort Myers in southwestern Florida, Avondale and Gilbert outside of Phoenix, Summerlin and Desert Shores on the glitz fringe of Las Vegas. But one-third of all subprime and alt-A mortgages are in California, concentrated in the inland suburbs as well as the blue-collar flatlands of Los Angeles and San Jose. Third California, <coughs> excuse me, third California, in other words, became the largest toxic sink, the economic equivalent of the Salton Sea. For the Bush-era trade deficit, recycled from China and Japan as cheap credit, transformed into non-prime mortgage paper, then bundled by an unfathomable formulas and to collateralize securities, which in turn became the asset base for further Ponzi-like pyramiding of derivatives and side bet hedges, ultimately loaned back to homeowners as equity lines to sustain the growth of household debt and consumption. Along the route, several million American manufacturing workers paid for Asia's borrowed savings with lost or downsized jobs. The result of the mobility of investment, the artificially low value of export currencies such as the renminbi and the vandal-like practices of private equity raiders. The national business ethics became supremacy of short-term financial gain enshrined as the principle of shareholder value over long-term reinvestment in technologies and collectivities of production, the supply side of the housing bubble. Everybody talks about the subprime crash, but unsecured loans and booby-trap mortgages constitute only one dimension of the real estate bubble. Speculative overconsumption is the other. In the absence of any social regulation of investment, real estate markets in rapidly growing areas tend to become gaming machines. With finance and construction process staggered over several years or more, price signals only truly anticipate future supply and demand. And the textbook model of this housing cycle, growing families and their rising incomes increase demand for single-family homes faster than builders can produce them, which leads to huge wave of investment that actually overshoots demand and is brought to a halt by credit crunch. But the boom this time, as William Wheaton has pointed on at, at MIT has pointed out in several papers, has broken the paradigm, since both incomes and family formation lie far behind new home construction. Indeed, in 2005, total housing production exceeded household formation by an incredible 60%, a phenomenon which Wheaton attributes to record rates of home purchases, 
for investment or second residences. Housing, in other words, was being produced for sheer speculation as hundreds of thousands of people attempted to flip homes and refinance their mortgage, mortgages through increasingly profitable trades. Subprime loans helped drive and accommodate this process, but there were also response to spiraling inventories. But if the frenzied rank and file were dropping quarters into the slots at real estate casinos in Las Vegas, Moreno Valley, and Fort Myers, institutional funds were the VIP players with the deep pockets. California pension funds played aggressive roles in promoting fire-prone sprawl at the expense of natural landscapes and endangered ecologies. And the worst offender, undoubtedly, has been CalPERS, the nation's largest pension fund, managing the savings of 1.6 million California state and municipal employees. Seem to be running out of time, so let me leap over a couple of sections here. Mismatch of housing markets with social need. The irony, of course, is that an absurd oversupply of McMansions and luxury congos in California exists with acute overcrowding and chronic shortage in the rental apartment market. The most overcrowded cities in the United States are in rank order downwards. Santa Ana, Anaheim, Los Angeles, Laredo, Texas, Long Beach, San Bernardino, Glendale, Riverside, and San Jose. As Beacon Economics emphasized in the last Inland Empire economic forecast, there's been, quote, a total mismatch between what has been built in recent years, 3,000 square foot homes, and what is actually needed, low rent apartments. Condominium construction in California for the first time is entirely overshadowed apartment building, and so despite a neutral declining national trend in the rent housing price ratios, rents in the states in the state have remained punitive relative to stagnant working class incomes. Let me just skip further and just read the last two paragraphs. Yet outer rim suburbanization has also been the principal frontier of housing and, eco and educational opportunity for Latinos, blacks, and many Asians in California, as well as for working class whites. Any critique of the environmental destructiveness or economic irrationality of the housing bubble must also acknowledge the enormous investment of labor, savings, and hope represented by the new commuter communities in the farm counties and the deserts. But inland California is currently fracturing, internally fracturing, along socioeconomic if not ethnic lines. As some communities sink entirely below the mortgage waterline, other locations remain largely intact islands of positive equity. Never in the post-war period have we witnessed such deep, simultaneous declines in the principal revenue streams of every level of California government. Nor have we ever seen such an ice age in the muni market, making it difficult and impossible for localities to sell bonds. Local property sales, local property sales and transactional taxes are falling at record rates especially in third California, while Arnold fiddles in Sacramento burns. This time around, raids on county budgets can't rescue the state, nor can the state come to the aid of the schools. At best, there will be a cruel battlefield triage, the more powerful lobbies shifting as much of the pain as possible onto the less powerful. In the mother of all fiscal crisis, nearly insolvent governments like the city of San Bernardino and the county of Riverside should be praying that the new occupant of the White House really is the Messiah. Thank you. Okay, let's go on.
<coughs> Thanks, Chris. Uh, I'm, as Chris introduced me, I'm Anil Devlalikar. I'm the uh, I'm a professor of economics and uh, director of the Public Policy Initiative and also Associate Dean of Social Sciences here at UCR. It is my pleasure today to introduce our very own Gary Dimsky to you. Uh, Gary is a professor of economics at UCR, but if his face doesn't look very familiar to you, it's because he's not been here for the last three, four years. He's been serving as the executive director, in fact, the founding director, of UCCS, which is the UC Center in Sacramento. Uh, before that time, uh, Gary, while he was here at UCR, served as Associate Dean of the College of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences. And he was also instrumental in founding the Blakely Center for Sustainable Suburban Development. Uh, today, Gary is going to talk to us about causes and consequences of the subprime crisis. So without much, I could probably go on and on introducing him and, and all his accomplishments, but I should let him speak. And uh, since we are running on a tight schedule, 25 minutes, I've told him that I'll give him a five-minute warning before his time is up. Thanks, Anil. Thanks, Chris and the center. Let me get this machine up and enabled. I want to pick up the ball where uh, Mike Davis left it with, with his uh, remarkable overview. And um, I'm, I'm going to pick out, as uh, he mentioned, uh, the need for a collective response to the crisis. And one of the problems with this crisis is its heterogeneous nature. Um, as he noted in his uh, latter remarks, it has come in so many different ways uh, with so many different manifestations and hit so many populations so differently uh, that finding through lines is really going to be a challenge. What I'm going to do today is focus on two dimensions of this um, and then explain why policy has failed thus far. Um, the, the two dimensions are, first of all, the transformations of banking strategy and, and finance in the uh, neoliberal era. And then secondly, we're going to take a look at the legacies of racial exclusion and, and discrimination and the ways in which those are at the root of this crisis. So without further ado, here's the idea. We're going to run through this, and I'm going to be paying attention to my available time and uh, possibly scooting through a few things. Um, but uh, basically, the introduction is that uh, I just want to start by saying that it's important, and, and of course, with Michael, we have the historian, the writer, and uh, I, too, want to start there with the idea that we must understand that this crisis is a long time coming, just as it's going to be a long time gone. And uh, it's important for us to realize that so many of the explanations are kind of pop explanations. It's something like, well, there's greed and overreach, or there's some people that were gaming the system. Yeah, for sure. Um, but there's so much more going on. Um, and indeed, it's also important not to be fooled into thinking that uh, this is a financial crisis much like any other crisis. Uh, of course, that kind of analysis is always appropriate, um, and much has been done by economic historians, but this is something very special to our era. It's better to look at this, in my mind, as, uh, in a, as resulting at root as an, from the abuses of the economic functions of the financial sector. Uh, we're going to work with some of the ideas of Hyminsky, although he'll be in the deep background here, 
And I want to say that the functionality of our financial sector has really been compromised uh, by this kind of perverse interaction between our legacy of racial discrimination and inequality on the one hand and unregulated hyper-competition by this globally dominant U.S. financial sector. So it's kind of ironic or is it fitting that it may be that the period of Pax Americana uh, that's evolved, uh, that has evolved through time may be brought down by our chronic problems of uh, racial oppression and huge disparities in wealth and income. And no matter what, we in California have got to deal with it, and that's where we're going to end. The timeline of the crisis, uh, just to, to note that uh, basically there was, there, were, there was a rhythm that's increased from, 19, from 2007 to present. Uh, this is just a reminder, and I'll, I'll, I'll make these slides available so you can take a, a closer look if you'd like. Um, I want to point out in particular, midway down the page there, September, October, uh, the, the Superfund idea came, and that came when really the when we knew that the crisis was really on is that the, the markets for asset-backed commercial paper froze up in late August. Uh, that is to say the core money markets of the global system literally came apart. At that point, uh, the effort was aimed at solving the system. We saw the Superfund idea. That eventually turned into uh, something much grander. Uh, and I just want to, I've got a picture here to show you uh, the asset-backed commercial paper market. This is the, these are the three um, uh, components of the commercial paper market. That's kind of the short-term money market, so to speak. And notice the, the dark black and how it peaks and then rockets downward uh, there in late 2007. That market literally died. Um, and little by little since then, almost the entire money market has been brought onto the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. Um, once that happened, then there was you know, another wave in September, October, when it became clear that the responses thus far were inadequate to the scale of the problem. Um, and I just list there some of the failures and takeovers that we've seen. And then the rescue fund. Um, we then, after the election of Obama, uh, had this very strange next Bretton Woods conference and most recently, we've had this Obama-Bush discussion about the second tranche of this uh, thing called the TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief uh, Program, I guess, uh, which, more about which later. Okay, now let's take a real quick tour through the, some of the historical precedents. When I talk about the economic functionality of the, economic, of the financial sector, you know, it's very simple. They, the, this sector should supply credit and, and provide liquidity um, and it should, in turn, take on default risk and liquidity risk. Um, and basically, uh, the, the, the principle that has been there historically is that whoever uh, takes the risk uh, bears the risk. And that's been a mechanism for dampening the you know, excesses in risk-taking. This breaks down from time to time. Principal agent problems, as they're called, occasionally arise. Uh, and there's tensions between these functions. Uh, basically, usually the, those making the, the loans can um, make more money by taking on more default risk. As they stretch the system out, they, um, at, they sort of expand it to the point that liquidity risk emerges. And, and, um, and basically, as long as risks are together on some of the players' balance sheets, there's a kind of self-regulation, um, if only because, it, in, in one case, the institutions making the loans are no longer able to do so, um, or the borrowers break down. Um, now, let's go and then, that's the way it has worked and should work. Now, our, 
what we now must do is take a journey into the reimagination and recre recreation of the U.S. financial system as the neoliberal age arose. I don't have time to give details, but essentially the system as we had it, the regulated banking system, broke down and had to be reconstructed. Uh, late 70s trends, I list some there, disintermediation, loss of funds, the loss of corporate loan customers. One reason that I can now talk about the uh, commercial paper market as the money market is precisely because a lot of the big players that used to have their money with banks uh, went on and, and uh, raised their own mons monies directly. Um, we saw the emergence then of developing country debt um, and excesses as uh, basically money that was unloosed from previously regulated sectors sought an outlet and uh, there were, as we know, failures in the 1980s um, and followed by failures in the 90s as well. I won't have time to talk about those episodes, but essentially what those have resulted in was, were the, the near death of commercial banking and of lending as it was traditionally conceived and the recreation of that industry in ways that um, I point out at the bottom of this page, the, the creation of a business model in which there was a shift from making money by, in the banking sector by holding long-term loans to term and then you know, making interest margin to instead making fees for originating these loans. Um, and indeed, in, in addition, um, a shift from providing banking services for all to specializing providing banking services for the uh, upscale retail customers. So what really happened then, for example, this is the picture one of two of balance sheets. And this picture here, I'm going to show you on, on, the, on the left is the, uh, the thrift, the, the originator of mortgages. Now, in the old days, the savings and loan institutions would make and hold mortgages to, to maturity. Uh, the, the, the game was changed in the 80s so that basically mortgages could be offloaded from institutions like those on the left and others, like just mortgage brokers and, and mortgage makers that wouldn't necessarily be holding depository funds and put over into mortgage investment pools. These MBS markets, as they call it, mortgage-backed securities, became the largest financial market in the world by the end of the 1980s. And uh, initially, there was this, uh, and, and I, I note here, there was this ambiguity about where's the risk. Notice that if the loans are being offloaded, then in some sense there's risk that's not captured on the balance sheet of the originator of the mortgage, but that's instead off at a distance. Now, this was initially policed by having uh, strict rules about who could qualify for these mortgages, what they called plain vanilla mortgage deals. And uh, that was kind of a way of, of adjusting all the risks and so on. Now, that market, that, that model of risk at a distance, but safe because the loans were plain vanilla, uh, this model, so that we're going to pause that and just take a, a quick visit now to another scenario, the other theme of my talk, which is the theme of racial inequality as it's played out in the credit and banking markets. There's been a history of exclusion of blacks and Latinos and Asians from uh, full-bore participation in the markets for wealth creation and opportunity. And uh, this has been fought. There is a long story. Um, I, those of you who, who know me know that uh, this has been a source of research for many years. And uh, basically, the story has been that traditionally, um, minority communities were excluded from credit. They were not given access. Uh, community activists fought them, 
and fought to ensure that uh, mortgages and loans for small businesses would be made available more uniformly and without discrimination and bias. Um, this is a struggle that went on for a long time. Um, and I should note that it's a struggle that in some sense is never ending, uh, has had some successes. But it's important to note that as we move from the 80s into the 90s, um, it's important it's, we should recognize that when we see the stagnation, the macro stagnation that Mike Davis has described, that's been, that was creating more and more ranks of lower income households, migrant workers, others in the lower income recesses of the market that had initially been ignored by banks, but that became a more and more attractive market segment. Uh, products were developed for this segment, payday loans, uh, consumer durable credit, debit cards, and actually subprime loans. Now, subprime loans were initially made in redlined areas. Uh, we actually did some studies here in Riverside, and we went to the, uh, the historically uh, minority areas here in town, and we found that uh, many people who were senior citizens, homeowners um, in minority communities were being solicited aggressively in the 1990s uh, by uh, companies seeking to make mortgage loans that were going to have high rates, short maturities, and very rapid triggers for uh, penalty clauses and even dispossession. By 1998, one-third of all mortgage loans were made, made to African Americans were subprime, one-fifth to Latinos and low-income folks. These loans grew 900% in the 90s um, in inner-city areas, while other forms of credit fell. Uh, payday loans also exploded. So, you know, what we had then was this kind of uh, business model for subprime lending, but banks didn't want it on their balance sheets. Um, they, they then nurtured a securitization market for this paper, and this was made possible by a conjuncture of factors. On the one hand, improved computability. Um, secondly, the fact that the large banks were acquiring many subprime lenders, and there was a growing demand, demand in places such as the private equity funds and the hedge funds and so on, people seeking to systematically beat the market rates of return on Wall Street uh, that were looking for above-market high-risk paper. They had theories of portfolio diversification that had to do with risk-seeking. So essentially, uh, we had this conjuncture where loans that weren't viable for the borrower in the long run might be profitable for the maker in the short run, and there are people willing to hold it on the, on the back side. And this problem of recourse risk, the fact that a loan's not held by its originator, was kind of left aside. Uh, it was thought that secondary markets could take care of it. I just want to show you a couple of pictures here real quickly. The growth of mortgage debt. Now, what I've got here is from the survey of consumer finances from the Federal Reserve Board. It's broken out by income quintile. And the thing I want you to see is that um, the two rightmost uh, uh, columns reflect mortgage growth in the 90s and then going into the 2000s. And you'll see that there is significant mortgage growth in the lower income segments there. Here's non-mortgage debt. Also, just notice that the bars, the growth of debt is very substantial, on the, on, in, in, especially in recent years and especially for lower income people. And here's kind of a picture. On the left in this picture, the, the left two bars are debt and the right two bars for every segment are assets. And what you'll notice is that poor people's debt is growing a lot faster than their assets. That's true for the next segment. In the middle, it's still true. Only when you get to the kind of middle class, upper middle class, do you see a reversal there. So from the urban margin to the global system. 
The machinery needed for a robust subprime industry was then in place. We had bank and non-bank lenders. We had underwriters and bundlers, sources of demand for this high-risk paper, and abundant liquidity. And uh, as, as noted, the hedge funds and private uh, uh, equity funds were in there. Liquidity guaranteed by the unique macro position of the U.S. economy. More on that in a second. So you start to have a, a system that looked like this. Same kind of setup, only now on the left is not the mortgage originator necessarily, but the subprime credit originator are actually the bank, making all kinds of credits. And uh, this was then bundled into these now not mortgage-backed security pools, but instead subprime investment vehicles, structured investment vehicles, which would hold all kinds of paper that would not be clear, uh, was completely opaque to the purchasers. They don't know what they're holding. The short-term money market is just in there supporting that. Now we then come to the conjuncture. The housing market grows, the bubble grows, and people in the market start to feel that they can take a bad mortgage because we've got uh, basically housing price appreciation that will permit a reset of unviable loan conditions. Uh, loan prices go, uh, 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 the subprime market loans grow a lot, especially in California. Now, I'm going to skip a couple of things here, uh, basically just to show you that um, the housing price to income ratio, the dotted line there, grew quite a lot. Um, now, the crisis then, I, 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 the, the outbreak of the crisis, of course, is, uh, as we've already discussed a bit, the thing I want to emphasize here is notice the checkerboard character of this crisis. It is not everywhere, and it's not everywhere the same. In the Midwest, for example, we have uh, many instances of subprime crisis due to collapsing income more than to, falling house, or to rising house prices, whereas it's the opposite in California. Um, here... Just a quick glance, we've got the uh, diamonds, or rather the triangles, represent Detroit and Cleveland, and that's the uh, housing index values. Notice that they never really rise, um, whereas, of course, for cities like Phoenix and Las Vegas, they go up quite a lot. And that's been the experience here as California's story as well. Um, I want to emphasize that because these loans were concentrated in minority areas, and while they were brought into the broader housing market, they always remain predominantly uh, with the minority communities, historically excluded communities. So when we look at foreclosures, here's a map of Orange County, we can see that the historically redlined areas are the areas that suffer the most in this crisis. Okay, now why did it all go wrong so quickly? I want to make two big points, and I'll leave you with a policy dilemma. The first point is that this all has something to do with the U.S.'s cross-border imbalances. The fact that for so many years, this picks up a theme that Mike made about the macro situation. Um, at the macro level, we have had structural trade imbalances. We've been basically having trade deficits for many years, which means that we have had capital surpluses. We've been a global liquidity sink. That means that Wall Street has continued to absorb resources from the rest of the world. Here's something, uh, I'll just show you this quickly and then I'll show you a, a picture. This is a picture of the, the pink reflects the market value of all of the financial firms listed in the Business Week 1000. And uh, basically what you see here is in 1989 the, the, the dominance, especially of the Japanese banks there on the bottom, uh, and then the weakness of the U.S., that's when Japan was becoming number one. 
Um, and notice that crisis after crisis, the U.S. got bigger and bigger. Crisis after crisis, we had a trade imbalance. Crisis after crisis, we remained not just the world's global liquidity sink, but we remained a safe harbor for uh, uh, global investors. Okay, now here's the picture. Uh, feast your eyes, please. Pay attention to the purple, which here is Asia in 1989, and then the U.S. is the light blue, and so we're going to roll through. If you remember uh, Pac-Man, the game, uh, this is uh, 1989, 1997, 2001, and 2004. Business Week stopped the survey at that point. Uh, game over. Um, why has policy failed? take a couple more minutes to, to wrap up here. And I want to make one more big point um, and in which the people can afford housing and we have a productive financial sector. But this depends on what we think went wrong. And, you know, one story has been about monetary policy and for markets to be smart. Now, I'm going to skip this part because uh, we've seen that conventional monetary policy has not succeeded. Uh, we have Greenspan sin, um, and uh, our current chair, Bernanke, has tried to make up for that. Um, this is a, a, a part of the sin story here. I'll skip this. Uh, but I want to also note that another story is that the Wall Street mega bank complex got into some huge and unexpected miscalculations. Uh, however, they remain a source of U.S. competitive advantage, and they must be protected. Uh, so the banking system has been disadvantaged for years by, by, by excess capacity and continues to be. So this is a good moment to clean things up. This premise that we need a more efficient and better informed financial system with more complete markets remains true, and it's at the heart of the argument for financial stability. This, was, this quote was appeared in today's Wall Street Journal. Uh, I'll read it just in the interest of you seeing what's being said here. Bernanke says at the London School of Economics, fiscal actions, i.e. stimulus, are unlikely to promote a lasting recovery. They must be accompanied by strong measures to further stabilize and strengthen the financial system. Okay, and then and he goes on. Right. This same note has been struck by Robert Schiller, he of Irrational Exuberance, and whose rate, latest book is The Subprime Solution. Schiller argues that there's kind of a mechanism design flaw. What we need are more, we've got uh, risk assessment and risk management systems that haven't kept up with the risk distribution systems, so we need more perfect markets. In other words, let the Wall Street complex fundamentally alone Recapitalize it. Okay, here's my last point. This has been going on for a long time. This is 1997. These are the top 25 bank holding companies in the U.S. scaled from 1 to 25, largest to smallest. Okay, now this, that's a half a trillion dollars there um, on, the, on the scale, and you may wonder why, but you'll soon see. What happened? Bank merger wave. 2004, that's who's left. What's happened since then? Well, uh, the mega banks got bigger, right? And uh, that's where we are. Now, there's another way to look at this. Essentially, uh, I took the, here, what this, what this graph does is it takes the top 25 banks and just ranks them one to 25 year after year. And what you see is that the, the biggest ones at the very top, the two big to fail banks, have been getting bigger and bigger. Now, this is through June 30th, 2008. Look at what has happened after all of those adjustments that I mentioned in September. Okay, pay attention just to that top line. There you go. There's your policy impact. More concentration. And, and furthermore, 
Where has the money for the tarp gone? Okay, I've got the same scale there so you can see it. It's gone to the big boys. The bet is on the big. The bet is on the financial markets solving their own problems. And, of course, we have seen nothing. Um, and here's a measured a different way. Keynesian warnings here. Uh, these systems can fail. They fail before. There's nothing perfect about them. Um, and I'll just end with this note. Paul Krugman wrote a year ago, more than a year ago, uh, something very profound. Uh, there are three distinct concerns associated with the rising tide of foreclosures. One is financial stability. Okay, as banks and other institutions take huge losses, the system as a whole is wobbly. Second is human suffering. Hundreds of thousands of people losing their homes. And the third is injustice. And if you think of that, think of the, what we've got here. We've got our financial system caught in its own trap of instability, in tatters and ruins and being heavily subsidized now, the only solution in town thus far. In the middle, the thousands on thousands of homes and people in foreclosure and underwater needing assistance with no solution in sight. And on the bottom of it all, the legacy of racial injustice. It's a big challenge for policy, but here we are. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gary. Uh Okay, I'm going to introduce uh, our next speaker, speaker Bill Robinson. Uh, Bill is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and he's uh, uh, a sociologist who uh, has theorized global capitalism. Uh, he has an excellent book called The Theory of Global Capitalism, and his most recent book is called Latin America and Global Capitalism. He's a Latin Americanist, uh, uh, studies uh, uh, Central America especially, but he's been all over Latin America and uh, the rest of the world as well. Anyway, his talk today is um, Global Crisis and Alternative Futures. Good afternoon to everyone and uh, thank you very much to our sponsors for organizing this event and for inviting me and especially to uh, my longtime senior colleague and friend, uh, Chris Chase Dunn. The two previous presentations were fascinating and brilliant, and I want to try and, and build on them specifically by uh, looking at or attempting to construct a, a big picture of what's going on. Uh, and let me start by saying that how we understand this crisis more than a contentious issue in critical political economy is also, and much more importantly, a burning political question. And I want to suggest here that a global capitalism perspective offers us powerful explanatory framework for making sense of this current crisis. So here, following Marx, uh, we want to understand crisis through the internal dynamics of capitalism. But following a global capitalism perspective that I have been attempting to put forward, we want to look at how capitalism has qualitatively evolved in recent uh, decades. Because this crisis is not a repeat of the 1930s, it's not a repeat of the 1970s, specifically because world capitalism has is fundamentally different in the early 21st century than it was in the early in the mid 20th century. And so we need to understand those differences. Uh, I've argued that globalization represents a new epoch in the ongoing evolution uh, of world capitalism and specifically with three dimensions we want to look at. And that is first the rise of 
truly transnational capital, the construction of a globally integrated production and financial system. Secondly, the rise of a transnational capitalist class as the manifest agent of global capitalism and which has achieved hegemonic hegemony within uh, the capitalist class and dominant groups worldwide. And third, the rise of transnational state apparatuses, very underdeveloped, but we've seen that. Uh, so here we want to focus then on the social origins of globalization and this global crisis. And I suggest that we need to see globalization as taking off in the 1970s and on, and, and uh, right up to date, as capital's response to the accumulation of social forces from below in the whole post-World War II period, specifically as capital's response to previous episodes of crisis, and here I'm referring uh, of obviously to the crisis of 1970s, the crisis of Fortis Keynesian redistributive capitalism, uh, that crisis capital responds to by going global and moving us to a new st uh, stage in, in world capitalism. So in the wake of that 1970s crisis, capital goes global as a strategy of emergent transnational capital to reconstitute its class power its social power by breaking free of nation-state constraints to accumulation uh, and by uh, breaking free of the power that nationally contained popular and working classes could exercise in facing capital in the previous nation-state phase of world capitalism. So this globalization opens up a series of opportunities uh, for accumulation worldwide, for tr capital in the process of, of uh, transnationalizing. Among other... Uh, um, among other things that we can note on these vast new opportunities that are opened up for global accumulation in the 1980s, 1990s, right up until really 2007, is first the downward pressure on wages and the social wage worldwide, massive increases in productivity, the shedding of labor uh, worldwide as a result of technological changes and so forth. All of that results in a tremendous shift of income towards capital and towards high consumption sectors worldwide, and that fuels uh, a resurgence and growth of the new globalized economy. We can also note, and these are just some of the many things that allowed capital this incredible boom, uh, globalized boom in the last three decades. Uh, privatizations and all of the neoliberal policies opened up vast new areas for globalized accumulation as transnational capital is uh, uh, emerging. Uh, intellectual property rights and the conversion of cultural spheres and, uh, uh, into commodities and knowledge, into the commodification of knowledge. Um, the integration of the former Soviet blocs and the former revolutionary third world countries into the global market and now subordinate to globalized accumulation. And of course, much closer to the other two presentations, uh, the rise of consumer debt and especially the use of consumer debt and of the US deficit as markets of last resorts and of now new ways for financial accumulation. So these are some of the many different mechanisms uh, which allows for an incredible burst of globalized accumulation in the last few decades. And so there's a major uh, intensive and, and extensive expansion of world capitalism in the last few decades. But as we know, uh, global capitalism has been and is extremely unstable. It's a contradictory system. It's a crisis-ridden system. It always has been. And so crisis breaks out starting in the late 1990s. Really, the key period is 1999 to 2001. <clears throat> and the big symbolic event for me is the Argentine explosion in 2001, which symbolizes the end now of the neoliberal era and of the offense of transnational capital, now pushed on to the defensive. So the crisis unfolds in the early 21st century with four dimensions that I've emphasized elsewhere. First, global uh, polarization. Uh, and this has been alluded to by, by, uh, uh, by Gary and the deep racialized dimensions of global social polarization. Secondly, overaccumulation. I'll come back to that momentarily. Third, crises of legitimacy all over the world. States face uh, and political authorities face these crises of legitimacy. <coughs> and fourth is 
crisis of sustainability. Uh, in ecological crisis. But I want to focus here on the overaccumulation dimension, this because this is the underlying structural dimension of global crisis. Uh, and what we've seen is in the last three decades with this boom in the new globalized phase of capitalism, the generation of ever more massive surpluses at the same time as there have been increasingly, uh, there have been diminishing opportunities after the boom of the 1980s and the 1990s for the profitable absorption of these surpluses. So we have the global economy expanding, but the ability to absorb all of this expansion, the surpluses that it generates, uh, starts to dry up in the 21st, really accelerates drying up of it in the 21st century. We want to recall here also that uh, a permanent challenge to capitalism, to the capitalist system, is how to profitably unload or absorb surplus. And so the absorption of surplus was temporarily offset in the 1980s and 1990s for the reasons which I, uh, or some of the reasons of which I already uh, outlined. But uh, so we go through one stumbling uh, block or one crisis of overaccumulation after another in the last 15, 20 years. First, the Mexico, Mexico meltdown of 1975, then the Asian financial meltdown of 1997, 98, uh, followed by Turkey and Brazil and Russia, then the uh, global recession of 2000, 2001, and the Argentine crisis of 2001. And in my view, that puts us now into a new ball, ball game after 2001. And so especially in the 21st century up to date, there's two major mechanisms now that sustain accumulation in the face of this deepening multi-dimensional crisis. One is financial speculation. That's an underlying theme of today's uh, um, uh, uh, symposium. And the other is militarized accumulation. Turning to financial uh, speculation, remember that this is a financial-led process of globalization. Transnational finance capital is the most mobile sector of capital, uh, and the innovation, some of which Gary uh, alluded, alluded to, the innovations of the last 30 years, the creation of derivatives, the computer and information technology revolution, uh, securitization, and so forth, uh, uh, all of this really heightens the power in the last 30 years of fi transnational finance capital to accumulate. Uh, and of course, financial deregulation, and that reflects the hegemony of transnational finance capital, and also a new structural power. Uh, of that fi transnational finance capital, an ability to appropriate value in new ways, increasingly irrespective of space. And so transnational finance capital becomes utterly predatory, whether it's looking at Southern California in the way that, 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 uh, that Mike is, or a uh, larger structural story uh, in the US in the way that Gary uh, is. So there's a sequence here of, of the global casino capitalism. Uh, we have first ma massive real estate investment in global cities, creating a global property market in the 1980s and 1990s, the incredible uh, uh, property markets that rise in Tokyo, in New York, in London, and so forth. Uh, then you have the 1990s, massive financial speculation in the stock market with the stock market inflation, and then it's bust, and then a shift in specifically into the dot-com, uh, becoming a giant bubble, and then it's bust. Then you have global commodity uh, uh, market speculations, especially in the global food market, uh, commodity market, and the global energy commodity market, and that's until very recent, until 2007, uh, 2008. Uh, and then, of course, you have all of this time the use of the consumer debt to repeat that, which grows fivefold between 1980 and 2001, and U.S. deficits, and that goes, the U.S. goes from a surplus in 1992 to a deficit this past year of $1.2 trillion. Uh, but the importance of the consumer debt and the U.S. deficit is that this allows for massive opportunities for even further financial speculation uh, in these areas. So uh, by the early years of the 21st century, you have massive concentrations of transnational finance capital starting to destabilize the system. 
the very system uh, which allows it to come into existence and dominate. Uh, and so overaccumulation uh, has its limits, and there's a limit to financial uh, speculative fixes. And the trigger, as Gary uh, and, uh, and Mike have already pointed out, is the collapse of the subprime uh, mortgage markets. That's what brings us right up to date to 2008 crisis. But I want to emphasize here the integrated nature of the global financial system. We're talking here about speculation, not by U.S. And there's, I might have some uh, disagreements or debates for, uh, in, with uh, my fellow members of, of the panel. Uh, we're talking about transnational finance capital. For instance, Russian investors put $1 trillion into the U.S. subprime uh, market. So what that's telling us is that the U.S. is acting as the hothouse where global investors can, can accumulate, and the U.S. state has a role as a representative of globalized capital. So there's many different ways to interpret this politically as well, and I do not interpret this in terms of new imperialism theory, but rather in the centrality of the U.S. state and the U.S. Uh, to globalized accumulation. Uh, but let me now turn to the second dimension, militarized accumulation. Uh, and here the U.S. state begins to really militarize global accumulation in the 21st century after 9-11. Uh, and we have a shift from computer information technology as the cutting edge of global accumulation to a military security industrial construction petroleum complex uh, uh, really becoming now the... the, the, the uh, uh, access of globalized accumulation. It's never clearer, that, so clear, for instance, in the case of Israel, where Israel went in the 1990s from being high-tech computers and software and so forth to now being a security to produce security and military equipment for the world. But that's at a whole globalized level. That's the shift that we've uh, seen. Uh, so you have the so-called war on terrorism, the invasion of Iraq in deeper structural terms. There's a massive unloading of surplus now through militarized accumulation. Uh, you have military spending accounting in 2003 for a full 70% of the rise in the U.S. GDP. Uh, and so this military spending in the U.S. state, and I'm, going to, I'm summarizing a lot here, of course, because we have uh, uh, limits on time. So, but what I want to emphasize is, is this military spending, what it does is, is it throws firewood on the dying embers of a global economy, which is uh, extinguishing itself because of crisis. So, for instance, the U.S. state gives $500 uh, million dollars to Halliburton. And you say, oh, well, that's U.S. against can't competit with competition with others, but that's not the way it works. The 500 billion then out of that 200 million uh, maybe goes to subcontracted firms in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, and I studied one case of this. And then those subcontracted firms means in, in the Middle East, these capitalists in the Middle East are accumulating. Then they pay out $20 million to a labor recruitment firm in the Philippines to send labor into Iraq for reconstruction projects, and so capitalists in the Philippines accumulate uh, through this U.S. globalized accumulation, but then the workers in Iraq send back remittances to their family members in the Philippines, who then go into globalized malls in the Philippines, and they buy in those globalized malls products coming out of uh, sweatshops in China, and then a security firm in South Africa is brought in to the project to provide security, and so, so forth and so on. So you can see the U.S. state, by militarizing this global accumulation, is keeping the global economy going for at least a few years. So we have these two dimensions. Uh, uh, financial speculation as accumulation in the face of crisis, and we have militarized accumulation in the face of crisis. So now we want to ask, what is the nature of this crisis? And I'm going to suggest that this is not a cyclical crisis, that the recession of the, of the early 1980s, no matter how severe, was cyclical of the early 1990s and of the early 21st century. Those were the cyclical crises. Rather, we are facing a structural 
crisis, a structural crisis in the sense that the system now has to be restructured in order for it to continue to reproduce itself, to continue to function. So this is more of a structural crisis in the sense that the crisis of the early 1970s was a structural crisis whose, whose restructuring led us into the whole era of globalization, or a structural crisis such as the 1930s, in which the restructuring of the whole system led to the era of Keynesian uh, Fordist national capitalism being consolidated. So we're in a structural, not a cyclical crisis. But more than that, we want to ask, are we in the face of a systemic crisis? The difference between a structural crisis is, is as, as I define it, is that a, in a structural crisis, the system has to restructure itself if it wants to sustain itself. A systemic crisis means you're in a crisis in which the system, uh, we could move beyond the system. The system itself could actually break down. Something could come after it. Uh, and so the key question, if we're asking whether we are in a structural or a systemic crisis, is that if this becomes a systemic crisis, it is not yet, depends entirely on the response of social and political forces to the crisis. And uh, so that means that here's the role of collective agency and of contingency and of what happens in the coming months and the coming years. Um, so there are different alternative responses, alternative futures, and they're not mutually exclusive. So let me very briefly run, run through what could be five different scenarios that I can imagine, and there could be more as well. But these are five that I'd like to identify. One is a resurgence of the left, um, including a socialist or anti-capitalist left, a populist left, a mildly reformist left. Uh, certainly in this regard, Latin America is the weak link, uh, or depending on our view, the strong link. Um, and Venezuela has done a great service by putting socialism back, democratic socialism, back on the agenda worldwide as a legitimate uh, project. Uh, but all over the world, we're seeing resurgence of, different, of the left in different forms and guises, such as the recent split in the ANC. I know I'm simplifying, but there's a structural uh, response, to, there's a response to a crisis from below there, which results in a split in the ANC, the uh, rise of new left forces in Germany and France, the, ri the rise of the World Social Forum, and so forth. Of course, there's tremendous challenges to this first option, a resurgence of the left that could respond from a leftist project to the crisis, uh, including uh, that globalized flexible accumulation and informalization has meant, a, as we know, a severe uh, fragmentation of popular classes worldwide, and so a coherent popular response is very difficult to bring about. Uh, then there's also the... the um, current popularity of anarchist aversion to state power and to challenging the state by actually replacing the state with a more progressive state or, or forming state policies. Uh, and then, of course, there's the lack of what some have called a postmodern prince. Uh, that is that we have all the social forces there for a left response to this crisis, but what type of political vehicles, what type of concrete political projects for a left response to the crisis. Uh, national states are going for the foreseeable future to be the fundamental terrain for battle among contending social forces, but as well the transnational state is contested terrain. And of course in all of this, uh, the states, state and the states face spiraling fiscal and legitimation crises. Um, the two other members of the panel have referred indirectly uh, to that. States need to generate the conditions for transnational accumulation and now to regenerate that crisis of transnational accumulation. But they also need to respond to massive uh, popular pressures from below. Um, uh, and so you can uh, see how that's playing itself out. A second alternative for the future would be some type of a global reformism, a global neo-Kinesianism. And remember, these are not mutually exclusive. So combination of social forces in one and two here can come together for some unforeseen project in the future. But certainly the victory of Obama and Stiglitz and Kruger and some of these names really articulate that global neo-Kinesianism. And here we're moving in economics from neoclassical to institutional economics as a theoretical uh, framework. Uh, and of course, this involves re-regulation uh, a massive return of uh, the state, but in new ways, in ways of the 21st century, not a 20th century return of the state. Um, 
Uh, and of course, the objective here is to save capitalism from itself and from potential radical challenges. And there's also the fundamental contradiction here that we have a globalizing economy within a nation-state-based political system. That's always been, over the last 30, 40 years, a fundamental uh, contradiction. Transnational uh, state apparatuses are incipient. They are unable to impose regulation and, uh, and intervene effectively. And here's a quote, by the way, expressing the concern of the global elite over the fact that they do not have a transnational state which they can utilize to respond to this crisis. So British uh, Prime Minister Gordon Brown says, just uh, two months ago, we now have a global financial markets, global corporations, global financial flows, but what we do not have is anything other than national and regional regulation and supervision. We need a global way of supervising our financial system. We need very large and very radical political institutional changes. So a revealing quote. Uh, a third possible scenario for the future is that there is a recoiling into national protectionism. Uh, I put this out as a scenario because we can't rule anything out and because uh, uh, there still are national and regional capitals and there are still are elites and popular forces that operate within the framework of nation states and, and, and regions. Nevertheless, I suggest that so far there's very scant evidence that this is going to be this, that this is really uh, where, where we're headed, despite recent uh, protectionist measures by Russia and India. Um, and in any event, uh, a new protectionism of the 21st century in 2009 would be very different than what we saw in the 1930s because really what would be protected by protectionist measures is not national capital in competition with other national capital but transnational capital and globalized investors operating in different countries and regions. A fourth possible alternative for the future is what I've referred to elsewhere as 21st century fascism. The uh, Bush and the Neocon project was clearly the beginnings of a 21st century fascism. Uh, so was the defeated McCain-Palin uh, 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 project. But we see this as an alternative rising around the world, a response to crisis. We see it consolidated, really, in Colombia. We see fascist projects fighting it out in Bolivia and in Venezuela. We see fascist forces consolidating in uh, coming, to get, coming up, emerging and organizing in Austria and Germany and many other places around the world. One thing that confuses people when I say this so much is they, when they hear the word fascism, they think it has to be look like 20th century fascism. It doesn't at all. What I mean by fascism is a co very concrete structural situation with a political and ideological project. It's a fusion of reactionary political power with transnational capital on the one hand. It's a, a project which develops a mass base and on the, especially on the basis of people's insecurities and fears on scapegoating and racism in the U.S. The scapegoats and, and in Europe too would be the immigrants, undocumented immigrants. We've already seen a fascist project emerging on that with that particular scapegoat. Uh, uh, fascism involves extreme militarization, and obviously we've totally seen that. Uh, uh, extreme masculinization of culture, uh, millennia religious and mystifying ideologies, which in the U.S. has been Christian fundamentalism uh, in the last few years. And so under this type of a project, we'd, be, we'd continue what already has been a move from social welfare to social control, social control states, to police states. Um, because remember also that now social control itself becomes profitable. And uh, Jesse Diaz, who's in the audience here, had been, he and I were talking a couple days ago, and he pointed out to me, well, in the immigrant rights movement, we have a problem that already now it's so profitable to do uh, uh, militarized repressive enforcement that even if you get a political project to ease back on the crackdown against immigrants, uh, you still have incredible social economic interests invested now in this, uh, uh, in this um, prison industrial, uh, okay, in this uh, security new types of security accumulation. And so a fifth possibility here is a global collapse, what I've called elsewhere a global warlordism. And if no social force or no political project is able to prevail and to resolve these, uh, these 
credible contradictions of the global system currently, then we could see a global collapse. I remember that uh, Eric Hobsbawm wrote his book, I think it came out in 1996 or 1997, The uh, Long 20th Century, if I'm remembering, the, or am I confusing with, uh, with another book? But Eric Hobsbawm wrote his, tw his history of the 20th century. Uh, and I'll never forget he, one of his phrases because it stuck with me so much. He said, we are not on the threshold of a revolutionary upheaval, but of social breakdown. Uh, and so this is another possible uh, alternative future. There are ecological constraints to the resolution of the crisis right now that we need to analyze and understand. So we could have a systemic crisis, but not because there's a, a project which moves humanity forward, but because there's a global collapse and what one sociologist, uh, Sing Chu, has referred to as a new dark ages. So some concluding observations. Um, by way of conclusion, I think I have about a minute or two, and that's about what I need. Uh, to say that now we are in crisis is to say that we are now in the phase of the devaluation and the destruction of capital surpluses. So already we've had a massive devaluation of fictitious capital. Um, you, we always see this in crises when capacity for surplus absorption runs out, you now have a destruction of fictitious uh, capital devaluation. Uh, the Washington Post reported on, one, on January 9, just a few days ago, that there's been already $6.9 trillion wiped out on Wall Street in the year 2008. But let's recall here, historically, that there's the ability of capital, in this case transnational capital, to transfer the costs of devaluation onto the mass of popular and working classes. Um, what better example could you have than what uh, both Mike and, and, uh, and Gary were pointing out at the, in the cal level of California? So a key question here is what is the ability of the popular classes to resist the transfer of devaluation and destruction of fictitious capital onto their shoulders, or well, onto our shoulders? Uh, in addition, we definitely have already seen and it's going to accelerate a further concentration and centralization of transnational capital. Uh, Gary spoke about that with banks in the U.S., but I would say that this has is, this is already begun worldwide. There's going to be a credible new centralization and concentration of capital. Uh, if there is a neo-Keynesian recovery, again along the lines of what Gary was alluding to, uh, if there is a new New Deal, uh, we want to remember uh, something very interesting and important and also scary here. And the uh, Los Angeles Times reported on 1130 of 08 that the U.S. government uh, n was not just the $700 package, which Obama's trying to get, the $700 billion that already went through, but if you put all of the bailouts, all of the measures being taken by the U.S. state, it involves $8.5 trillion, a total rescue. This is absolutely phenomenal. It's mind-boggling, that amount of money. And then in the article was saying, well, where is this money coming from? And it's being printed. It's simply print using the printing press. So what does this mean? That the resolution of one crisis, if it comes about through neo-Keynesian spending, is simply going to generate another one. This is the nature of reality, in this case the nature of capitalism, that one crisis leads to another. So if there is a resolution through this type, from $8 trillion of, of new dollars being printed, we're going to see, after a recovery begins, hyperinflation, like what took place in Latin America in the 1980s, in the 1970s, in the 1980s. We're going to see an acceleration of the third worldization of the first world, which in some political aspect, in some political sense, is, is a good thing. It's not necessarily negative, depending on how we interpret what we mean by that. But what, what, what that would be is further global downward leveling. So we have these different five scenarios. We have different combinations of them. And the main thing is that I don't have a crystal ball, and I wouldn't want a crystal ball because that would not be social science. The future is not predetermined. Um, uh, structural change is always shaped by collective agency and by contingency. Um, uh, so the future, uh, literal sense, is ours.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.